Chapter Twenty Four of Dawn of the Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Like Many Waters. Dawn of the Morning by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Twenty Four. Dawn had been in New York for two months after various trying experiences in getting there and all that time she had been unable to find anything to do by which she could earn her living. The miserable little boarding-place, the best she could afford, was growing more and more uncomfortable as the hot weather came on. Dawn was thin and worn and sad. Her money which she had earned during the winter and which she had always carried sewed inside her garments was fast melting away. A few more weeks and she would be penniless." She began to wonder what would come next, and to question whether it would not have been better to stay with the school and trust the old minister and Daniel to protect her from Harrington Winthrop. But always, after thinking it over, she decided that she could not have been safe when he knew her whereabouts. There was one other thing which troubled her constantly now. It was that sentence of Daniel's. He'd rather have you and the trouble than to have no trouble without you. Was it true? Did Charles love her that way? Was she giving him trouble by staying away? If he's anything like you say he is, he's most crazy hunting you, Daniel had said. Was that true, too? Could he be hunting her yet? Had she been wrong in coming away? Gradually she came to admit to herself that there might have been a better way. She might have made a mistake, but it was too late now to remedy it. She could not go back on her promise that she would trouble him no more. She could not bring added disgrace to him now that she had stayed away all these months, and everybody must know it. Oh, how long and hard life was! And then she once more went wearily at her task of hunting a position. Slowly, stealthily, up from the south, strangely unexpectedly down from the Canadian border, there crept a grim specter of death. Heard from afar with indifference at first, it gradually grew more terrifying as it drew nearer. Now and then the death of a well-known victim caused uneasiness to become more manifest. Hotter grew the sun, and nearer drew the specter. The daily papers contained advice for protection against it. The cities cleaned their streets and warned their citizens. The temperance societies called attention to the fact that hard drinkers were in more danger than others. Meat and milk and vegetables were carefully inspected. Water was boiled cheerfulness was put on like a garment and assurance was flaunted everywhere people were told to keep up a good heart and keep clean and there was little danger still the spectre crept nearer laying hands upon its victims and daily reports grew more alarming it was near the end of june when the ministers met in new york and petitioned the president to appoint a general day of fasting and prayer to avert the oncoming pestilence Andrew Jackson replied that it was in their line, not his, to decide whether this matter was important enough to bring to the notice of the Almighty, and he left it in their hands. The days went by, and the specter crept on. The governors of the states began to appoint days of prayer. At last, the cholera was a recognized fact. It had come to do its worst. The newspapers abandoned their talk of its impossibility and set about making the best of things, describing the precautions to be taken, the preliminary symptoms, and the best method of treatment. For a time, during the latter part of June and the early part of July, it was hoped that by vigilance and care it could be kept out of New York City. The worst of the pestilence was in the southern states, though it had made great ravages as far north as Cincinnati, and from Canada it was spreading south into New York State. 
Here and there a little town would have a single case, which would send terror throughout the county, and daily the number grew greater. Charles was looking worn and thin. He had bought the little house and had had it renovated. It was furnished now and waiting for the bride who did not come. His heart grew sick with the great fear that was growing within him, the fear that he should never find her on this earth. Of late a new worry had come to him. A letter had come to his father from Harrington's wife, saying that she was destitute and that her husband had deserted her again. He had stayed with her but a week after he brought her home, though he had promised many things. In spite of himself, Charles could not get it out of his mind that Harrington had spirited Dawn away somewhere. He did not doubt her for an instant. He would not let himself think that she might still have some lurking love for the man who had not scrupled to do her a wrong. He laid all blame, if blame there was, upon his brother. Harrington had sometimes appropriated his younger brother's boyish treasures to his own use when they were both younger, and Charles had no doubt he would not hesitate to do thus even with his brother's wife were such a thing possible. Sometimes the remembrance of the terror in Don's eyes when she asked about Harrington and where she would have to meet him made Charles fairly writhe, and he felt that he must fly somewhere to the ends of the earth if need be and find her. He lay on the couch in the library one warm evening in early July. Betty sat beside him, reading the New York paper which had just been brought by the evening coach. She was trying to distract his mind from the ever-present sorrow over which he seemed to brood every minute when he was not in actual motion trying to find his wife. This evening there was a deeper gloom over them on account of having received that morning news of the death of Mr. Van Rensselaer. Charles lay still, with his face shaded from the candlelight, and let Betty read. He was paying little heed, but it made Betty happier to think that she was helping him to bear his pain. The little sister's sympathy was a great comfort, and so if she could think she was helping him, he was glad. He was occupied in trying to think out a plan for finding Harrington, just to make sure that he knew nothing about Dawn. "'Here's something about the new railroad, Charles. Shall I read that, or would you rather have me read Parley's magazine than the commercial advertiser?' "'Oh, read the commercial advertiser, by all means,' said Charles, trying to rouse himself to take an interest for Betty's sake. His head was aching, and he was weary in both body and soul. "'Well, listen to this, Charles. Isn't this wonderful? They've completed the railroad from Saratoga to Boston. They can go eight miles in twenty-eight minutes. Think of that beside the stagecoach traveling. It takes only an hour and five minutes to go from Boston to Synecdoche, and you can go from Albany to Saratoga in three hours.' Who would ever have believed it true? Do you suppose it is true, or have they exaggerated? Oh, I guess they can do it, said Charles with a sigh. The new railroad made him think of his wedding journey. Oh, to take it over again and never let his bride out of his sight. Betty read on. Governor Howard of Maryland has set July 4th as a day of prayer that the cholera may decline. Governor Cass says, but a low moan from Charles made her fly to another column to distract his mind. Here's the report of the meeting of the Foreign Mission Board in New York. Would you like to hear that? It looks interesting. The evening address was made by the Honorable Stephen Van Rensselaer. <gasps> Why? Betty stopped in dismay, but Charles answered the wonder in her tone quietly. Yes, Betty, Stephen Van Rensselaer is a cousin of Mr. Van Rensselaer. He is a fine speaker. Read about it. But Charles did not attend, though Betty rattled off a lot of statistics glibly, inwardly blaming herself for constantly coming upon things that would remind Charles of his loss. There are twelve missions now, with twenty-five stations under the board. 
Seven are in India, two in Asia, four in the Mediterranean, seven in the Sandwich Islands, twenty-seven among the southwestern Indians, four among the northeastern Indians, and four among the Indians of New York State. There are seventy-five missionaries, four physicians, four printers, eighteen teachers, twenty farmers and mechanics, and one hundred and thirty-one females, married and single, sent out from this country. My, isn't that a lot, commented Betty. Just below the report of the missionary meeting was a brief paragraph. She plunged into it without stopping to glance it over. Disappeared, a female dressed in a white straw bonnet trimmed with white satin ribbon, a black silk gown, white crepe shawl with flowered border, black silk stockings, and chocolate-colored parasol. Oh! cried Betty in dismay, and then went wildly on to the next column, not daring to look at her brother. The Honorable William Wirt has purchased a plantation in Florida and is going to work it with hired hands. This will do more toward opening the eyes of the slaveholders than all the declamatory efforts of the free states since the adoption of the Constitution. That is quoted from the United States Gazette, Charles, and the editor of this paper has a long, dry-looking comment on it. Do you want to hear it? Betty looked uneasily at her brother, but his white face was turned toward the wall. Here's an article about Barnabas Bidwell and something about General Prosper Wentmore. Doesn't father know General Wentmore, Charles? Betty felt she was not getting on well at all. I believe he does, answered her brother patiently, and then the knocker sounded insistently through the house, and Charles came to an upright position in an instant. He seemed ever to be thus on the alert for something to happen, and this time something did happen. A negro boy stood at the door with a note scrawled on a leaf from a memorandum book. He said he was to give it to Mr. Winthrop at once. As his father was out, Charles read it. Betty held the candle for him to see. It was badly written with pale ink. Betty's hand trembled and made the candle waver. She felt that something momentous was in the air. "'Come to me at once. I'm desperately ill. Harrington,' read the note. It was like the writer to command and expect to be obeyed. Charles pressed the note into Betty's hand, saying, "'Give it to Father as soon as he comes, and don't let Mother or Aunt Martha know.' Then he seized his hat and sprang out into the night, urging his escort into a run, and demanding an explanation as he went. But the boy could tell little of what was the matter. He knew only that he had been sent in great haste, and that the gentleman was very sick. The night was still and warm. There was a yellow haze over the world, and a sultry feeling in the air. People had been remarking all day how warm it was for the season of the year. Charles plunged through the night with only one thought in mind. He was to see his brother in a few minutes, and he must take every means to find out whether he had any knowledge of dawn. His whole soul was bent on the purpose that had been his main object in life during the past year. It occurred to him that Harrington might be in need of medical attendance, though that was a sort of secondary consideration at the time. So he sent the negro boy after their family physician. He himself went on alone to the inn, some two miles from the village where the boy said his brother was stopping. When Charles reached the inn, he found a group of excited people gathered near the steps, and the word cholera floated to his ears, but it meant little to him. In a moment he was standing by his brother's bedside. Harrington turned away from him with a groan. "'Is it only you?' he muttered angrily. "'I sent for father.' "'Father was not in. He will come as soon as he returns. I will do anything you want done. I have sent for the doctor. But before I do anything, you must answer me one question.' Do you know where Dawn is? Have you seen her since the day of the wedding? Harrington turned bloodshot eyes upon his brother. Who is Dawn, he sneered. Oh, I see. You mean Miss Van Rensselaer. 
yes, I remember you were smitten with her the only time you ever saw her. I believe in my soul it was you who cheated me out of my little game, and not Alberta at all. Well, it doesn't matter. I've got something better on the string now, if I ever get out of this cursed hole. Let the doll-faced baby go. She wasn't worth all the trouble it took to keep track of her. Then suddenly he was seized in the vise of an awful agony, and cried out with oaths and curses. Down below his window a group of huddled negroes heard, and a shudder went through them. They drew away and whispered in sepulchral tones. Charles stood over his brother in helpless horror until the agony was past, and Harrington gasped out, "'Go for the doctor, you fool! Do you want to see me die before your eyes?' Charles's voice was grave and commanding as he stood over his brother and demanded once more, "'Answer me, Harrington. Have you seen her since the day of the wedding?' answer me quickly i will help you just as soon as i know all i shall not do a thing until you tell me a groan and a curse were all the answer he got and a cold frenzy seized him lest he should never get harrington to tell what he knew he understood that his brother was a very sick man great beads of perspiration stood upon his forehead get me some whiskey you brute cried out the stricken man that awful agony is coming again. Well, if you must know, she's teaching school in a little forsaken village over beyond Skohari. Butternuts, they called it. At least she was till I appeared on the scene. Then she made away with herself somehow. I stayed three days waiting for her, but she didn't come back. I stopped off last week, and the people said she'd never returned. No one knew anything about her but a tow-headed boy who called himself Daniel, and said he helped carry her bag to the stagecoach. Now get me that whiskey, quick, I feel the pain coming again. Charles turned without a word and dashed downstairs to the landlady, demanding hot water and blankets. He knew little about illness save what his mother's semi-invalid state had taught him, but he had read enough in the papers lately to make him sure that Harrington had the cholera, and he knew that whiskey was not a remedy. Before he could return to his brother, the doctor arrived, and together they went up to the sick man who was writhing in agony and again demanding whiskey. The old doctor shook his head when he saw the patient. He has indulged in that article far too much already, he said. Then began a night of horror, followed by a day of stupor on the part of the patient. The doctor had said from the start that it was cholera, and that the disease was almost always fatal to persons of intemperate habits. Charles held himself steadily to the task of the moment, and tried to still the calling of his heart to fly at once and find dawn. Not another word had he been able to get from his brother. The pain had been so intolerable that Harrington had been unable to speak, and little by little he grew delirious until he did not recognize any of them. At times he cried out as if in wild carouse. Once or twice he called out, Alberta, in an angry tone, then muttered Mr. Van Rensselaer's name. Never once did he speak the name of Dawn. This fact gave Charles unspeakable relief. All through the night and day the doctor, the brother, and the father worked side by side, but each knew from the first that there was no hope, and at evening he died. They buried Harrington Winthrop in the old lot where rested the mortal remains of other more worthy members of the family, and the father turned away with bowed head and broken heart for such an ending to his elder son's misspent life, and kept saying over to himself, "'Has it been my fault? Has it been my fault?' They were almost home when Charles, who had been silent and thoughtful, touched the older man on the shoulder. "'Father, shall you mind my going away at once?' he asked. "'I have a clue and must follow it.' Mr. Winthrop lifted his grief-stricken head and, looking at his son tenderly, said, "'Go, my boy, and may you gain your heart's desire.'" End of chapter 24